Good morning. As your duly elected spiritual leadership, the session of HVPC desires to make our position on racism very clear. Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church is bound by and committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As such, we affirm our unity as members of the body of Christ. What injures any one of our members injures all of our members. In light of the recent outrages highlighting the evils of racism in this country, the session of HVPC affirms emphatically and in no uncertain terms its rejection of racism and its love of our African-American brothers and sisters. Genesis 127 declares God created man in his own image. As bearers of God's image, all people share in divine dignity and are equal before him. Racism is an abomination to God. It distorts, diminishes, defames, and destroys those whom God, in his goodness, created in his image. The idea or ideology that one race is superior to another is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's love in Jesus Christ casts out the fear that generates hatred. Christ's work on the cross has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and hatred so that we are no longer enemies of God and no longer enemies of one another. A key calling of the Church of Jesus Christ is the ministry of reconciliation, and we commit to continually to continue to prayerfully seek God's wisdom and how to work towards that reconciliation. Thank you. The second reading this morning is uh, from Acts chapter 5. John's going to pull me back a little bit. Acts chapter 5, verses 7 through 42. By the way, those of you who um, do better by seeing than by hearing, there are um, drafts of the sermon uh, next to the bulletins in the back. We don't have uh, scripture readings up on the screen, but they are included um, in that in in that document. Okay, so hear hear the word of hear the word of God. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel... A teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you do, what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, uh, uh, Theodos rose up, claiming to be someone, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. 
he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Eternal God, you are our refuge and strength. You are an ever-present help in time of troubles. Even if the earth collapses and the mountains fall into the sea, we will not be afraid, for you are with us, Lord God Almighty, our stronghold and our strength. When enemies attack us, they would have swallowed us alive as their anger flared against us if the Lord had not been at our side. When the floods rose against us, the torrent would have swept us away if the Lord had not been with us. We have escaped the hunter's trap. Our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Our God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God of our weary years. God of our silent tears. Thou who hast brought us thus far on the way. Thou who hast by thy might led us into the light. Keep us forever in the path, we pray. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the desert. May those who sow with tears, reap with songs of joy. May those who go out weeping come home singing, carrying their harvests in their arms. Unless the Lord builds the house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. How joyful are those who fear the Lord, all who follow his ways. You will enjoy the fruit of your labor. How joyful and prosperous you will be. How wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live in harmony together. 
For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Hear our prayers For we make them in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So when I was a kid growing up in Neosho, Missouri, a favorite verse of mine and my circle of wise guy, anti-authoritarian friends was Acts 529. We must obey God rather than men. For 12-year-old boys in small Ozark towns, every adult is an unelected dictator. And Acts 5.29 is confirmation that the Bible stands squarely on the side of freedom-loving boys and God opposes every dictator. Make sure you do the dishes after dinner. God never said anything about me doing the dishes. We must obey God rather than men. Sit up straight in your desk. The Bible doesn't say anything about good posture. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 also played a significant role in our heroic schoolboy imaginations. What would we do if one day in the future someone with a gun were to forbid us from reading or teaching the Bible? Our imagined enemy in those days were godless Marxists from Russia or China. These days, of course... God-hating people are found closer to home. For us, small-town heroes of nonconformity, the consequences of our self-declared independence were rarely more dramatic than after-school detention or a week of kitchen duty. But for the apostles, appearing before the Jewish Senate, a group of men who were responsible for the death of Jesus just a couple of months earlier, the stakes were incredibly high. In 11 out of 12 cases, the apostles died for their unflinching faith. And the 12th died exiled from his family. By some estimates, one out of seven Christians in the first century were killed for their faith. Now, I hope you noticed what the apostles say to the Jewish Senate, that it runs counter to what the scriptures say more generally about respect for constituted authorities. In the New Testament, for example, we read, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then in the Old Testament we read, in the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Now, 
The Westminster Larger Catechism fleshes out what that honor your father and mother commandment is all about. Here's how it goes in the catechism question. Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? Answer. By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority whether in family, church, or commonwealth. So how do we square these two things? How do we square the Bible saying on the one hand that we are to respect and obey those in authority over us for they have been put into that position by God himself and on the other hand that we are to obey God and not men? That's the question I'd like to answer today. And I want to tell you right up front that the answer to that question is actually captured in four words from our Pledge of Allegiance. And those words are, one nation under God. So let's begin by talking about God-ordained authorities. The Westminster Larger Catechism mentions all superiors in age and gifts, especially such as by God's ordinance, are over us in a place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. Westminster first mentions all superiors in age and gifts. And in that category are people without any specific um, legislated authority over us, without any specific power over us. In our culture, with its worship of youth, We have largely lost our respect for older people. Indeed, older people are regularly treated with disrespect and disregard. Age discrimination in the workplace is real. I remember when I was working for an advertising agency, one of the old men in our organization was Jack, who might have reached 60 years old. The people at the top of the ladder in that company of about 250 people were all in their mid to late 40s. And we all wondered how Jack had managed to survive to such an ancient age. The marketplace largely ignores old people because, well, old people don't buy as much stuff. Young people are the great consumers. Young families are feathering their nest. And so even though old folks typically have more wealth, young people with maxed out credit cards and fat mortgages are the ones who American business pays attention to. In 1964, some of you were alive then, in 1964, new left leader Jack Weinberg coined the phrase, don't trust anyone over 30 In an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin popularized the saying, but uh, Weinberg is the guy who said it first. And here we are 60 years later, and the young people of that generation are still kicking, and the Rolling Stones, who look like pickled cadavers, are still prancing on stage and making music. I'm not sure how they did that. In many traditional cultures, respect for elders remains a force. What would it look like for us if we were to regain that as a cultural value, a value that we once held? At a minimum, our Christian duty is to respect all people. But even beyond that, our Christian duty is to protect the weak and the widowed, many of whom are old. 
Now, also in this category of all superiors in age and gifts come some people who have a less formal kind of authority, teachers of all stripes in schools and in colleges in karate and ballet studios in the arts and in performance. They deserve our respect as well. One of the things that I appreciate about older people and one of the reasons that I have come to enjoy the study of history is that older folks have a kind of stability and a resilience that comes from experience and perspective. If the COVID-19 pandemic is your first healthcare crisis, if the stock market crash of 2008 is your first economic downturn, then they seem like the end of the world. But if you've seen a number of cycles of good times and bad times, then this latest crisis seems less life-threatening. This past Tuesday, this session held a special meeting uh, to which uh, we invited the African-American members of our congregation to talk with us about the current racial turmoil in our country. We wanted to understand better so that we could be a better church, so that our church could help make this a better country, a country that we can be proud of. Deacon Cynthia Cornish was the matriarch of the group, and while the rest of us were there and were upset and were crying, Cynthia had a kind of dignity and steady wisdom that only comes with age and experience. Now, I'm not saying that every old person is wise. There are some old fools in this world, and maybe you've met one. But what I am saying is that there is a kind of wisdom and stability that comes only with age. I love the energy and the vitality and the creativity of young people, but I also respect and honor the wisdom and the stately gentleness that are the product of a long life well-lived. So those are some of the informal authorities mentioned in the Westminster Confession or the Catechism. It also talks about more formal kinds of authority as well, such as, quote, such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or the commonwealth. So let's talk about those. The family. In God's providence, he provided for families so that children would be nurtured and cared for by parents who loved them. Parents exercise authority over their children, but not as tyrants who oppress, rather as teachers or as coaches who train and guide. A good parent requires of his child not what pleases the parent, but what will lead to a healthy development of the child. I'm sure all of us remember Paul's admonition, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger or to wrath, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Some of you remember Morrison's first law of biblical interpretation, which says, when scripture says do not, it's because some of us do. And when scripture says do, it's because some of us do not. Which tells me that some of us fathers are provoking our children to wrath. And some of us are not bringing them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now notice Paul's concern for the children. His concern is that some of the fathers in the church are driving their children to the point of anger. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the opposite of sit down and shut up. That's the opposite of because I told you so. That's the opposite of who do you think you are? Paul doesn't use psychotherapeutic language of the 21st century, but he is concerned about the emotional trauma inflicted on children by overbearing fathers. And there has been, have been times when Paul has been talking to me. Next up is the church. According to scripture, the church is a divinely constituted authority. The church is not a voluntary membership organization like a bowling league or the Moose Lodge. God established the church. And God established principles of governance within the church. And like those that are established within the family, those principles are there for the care and the nurture of the members. The apostles laid hands on and ordained overseers. We would call them elders or bishops. To govern the church. And scripture tells us that we, the members of the church, are to recognize the authority of those individuals who govern the church. As we read in Hebrews, this is 13 verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself for they watch for your soul as they who must give an account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. And last, the commonwealth. I love the word commonwealth. Commonwealth, uh, you know, you might call it the state. There are three commonwealths in the United States, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. It's an old-fashioned word. Uh, what I like about the word is that it recognizes that the purpose of the state is to promote the interest and the well-being of the citizens. Now, this past year, I have been increasingly reflecting on the relationship between the church and the state, between faith, which is the wellspring of the church, and politics, which is the means by which citizens influence the state. And I am concerned that the church has given things to the state which properly belong to the church. And increasingly, for more of us, even those of us in the church, the state has become our savior. And so politics has become our religion. So as an antidote to this rising worship of the state that I see, even in our midst, I would like to mention five things that Scripture tells us about government. Number one, every government is put in place by God. Now that's a little shocking for we in this country who pride ourselves on opposing tyrants. But Jesus who was not a citizen of the Roman Empire, said to Pilate, the Roman governor who would execute him, he says to him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen and who would himself be executed by the Roman government, said there is no authority except from God. 
And those that exist have been instituted by God. When we as Christians respectfully submit to the constituted authorities, whether those that is the governor of the commonwealth or the president of the United States or the building inspector of Lower Moreland Township, we do that in part out of reverence for God. Number two, God uses even sinful governments to do his will. In Jeremiah, we read these horrible words. This is Jeremiah 25, verses 8 and 9. Because you have not obeyed my words, I will send for all of the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Even the pagan Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. And even the death of Jesus was accomplished by God's plan. Using pagans, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles. This is Acts 4, verses 27 through 28. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, whom God anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Number three, we ought to pray for those who govern us. Paul writes to Timothy, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life and dignified in every way. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all who are in high positions. You might find it hard to offer those kinds of prayers for those people if you hate those people. Number four, we should honor and submit to those who govern us. In November 1789, Benjamin Franklin wrote to Jean-Baptiste Leroy a phrase that has stuck in our language. Franklin writes, Our new constitution is now established. It has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. You have to love Benjamin Franklin. Some of you might know that if my firstborn had been a boy, his name would have been Benjamin Franklin Morrison. And when someone gave us a dog, we tried to rename him Franklin, but it never stuck. God in his providence has blessed me with a daughter named Sarah Rose and a dog named Snuffy. Taxes are that part of the government that we hate most. And yet paying taxes is part of our submission to constituted authorities. Jesus wasn't afraid to talk about taxes. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Some of the taxes that were paid to Caesar paid for Jesus' execution. Some of the taxes paid to Caesar paid for the persecution of the church. And yet, Jesus is crystal clear. Pay your taxes. Submit to those who are in authority. 
Paul picks up on the same theme in his letter to the Romans. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And I think Peter puts the finest point on the matter when he writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's the church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And number five. This is the one that puts all of the rest of those into perspective. Every human government will end. And Jesus will reign forever. Isaiah foresaw this, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We read that, of course, during the Advent season. The Apostle John saw the fulfillment of this prophecy... This is Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Amen, amen, amen.